Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Zirong Huang, who is Professor of Photon Sciences, Particle Physics and Astrophysics at Stanford University and the SLAC National Accelerator Lab. His research focuses on accelerators and X-ray free electron lasers. Welcome, Zirong. Hi, yeah, nice, nice to have to, to, to have me here. Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So um, we have a couple of technical papers that we want to get to, but before we do that, I want to sort of set the context for our conversation. Um, we're going to talk about X-ray free electron lasers, but I want to rewind time a little bit, uh, go all the way back to uh, X-rays. So X-rays uh, have been with us for about 100, 120 years now? Yeah, more than 100 years, I believe. Starting and, from Rankin, right? Yeah. Right, right. And so, uh, so, so what's the, you know, if you kind of look at the last 100 years uh, and, you know, if you can take us through from the, from the X-ray invention to what we are currently doing uh, and the connection to the X-ray free electron laser, what, what have been sort of the biggest uh, step function changes during the last 100 years in this field? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can uh, try to, to give my perspectives. Uh, of course, uh, I think uh, X-ray was discovered uh, in 1895 by Rankin, uh, and uh, it was immediately a sensation uh, because uh, you know he shined X-ray on his wife's uh, finger with a ring, which is uh, you know one of the first images uh, uh, when when you talk about X-ray. That's one of the first images uh, people pops up. Um, yeah, and they immediately find the medical application, but also scientific applications. Uh, there, uh, not not long after that, uh, there's a work by. Uh, Bragg, uh, father and the son Bragg on Bragg law, 
and the work by Laoi on understanding what happened if you shine X-rays on crystals, which uh, give you give the name the field actually X-ray diffraction. I'm talking about scientific. You know, I'm I will not uh, I will not emphasize uh, on the medical field, which uh, I think as you know, you when you go to your dentist, you need to, to get X-rays. On the so on the scientific side, um, so the X-ray source has always been the so-called X-ray tubes, uh, very similar to what you use uh, in a, in a dentist's office. That has been, I would say, with us uh, as a state-of-art X-ray source for probably 50 years. I, you know, my you know my number may not be exact, uh, but that also, if you the the other you know in terms of X-ray diffraction. Another famous picture is the one took by uh, Ros uh, Rosalind Frankfurt on the DNA double helix structure. And uh, that was actually taken, I forgot the exact uh, year, but... Uh, 1950, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's around that time. And uh, that was taken with X-ray tube in the lab. But from there, uh, Watson and Crick deduced the X-ray, uh, you know, from the X-ray picture, deduced the DNA double helix structure. You know, of course, that was uh, one of the biggest discovery of the 20th century. And uh, uh, in terms, yeah, so people definitely realize X-ray diffraction a very useful tool for understanding atomic and molecular structures. Uh, so and there are also also need to have uh, better X-ray sources. I think in terms of X-ray source development, uh, the next major milestone I would say is uh, the discovery of a synchrotron radiation, uh, where basically people find uh, when the uh, you know when especially for using particle accelerator, uh, they uh, accelerate and store say electron beam of at a relativistic energy, those electron beam when they're being banded in a, say circular trajectory, they uh, uh, yield uh, the radiation radiation uh, to synchrotron radiation. Uh, and uh, that was initially as uh, just a byproduct of the uh, high energy uh, accelerator, but eventually people find uh, in the, I would say in the 70s, that can be a standalone, very bright uh, radiation source, especially in the X-ray regime. And what's that's the, where, go what, ahead. What's the first synchrotron at Stanford? Uh, the, the first synchrotron was, uh, no, the synchrotron was developed earlier. Uh, I think the first, the first observation of synchrotron radiation was done at the General Electric uh, come at the company, uh, but the first scientific, uh, uh, I would say one of the first, I, you know, I don't know exactly is the first, one of the first uh, scientific application of using synchrotron radiation is at Stanford, using a, a store drain we call the SPEAR. Uh, it's a high energy collider at the time for, for the actually very famous for the, in the 1970s for the discovery of uh, JSI particles. And uh, but it was also used parasitically for synchrotron radiation research. So that was done at the 1970s at the Stanford uh, Synchrotron Radiation Lab. 
So synchrotron is an accelerator. The, the X-rays is, like you say, sort of a side effect, right? It, it is, uh, as you operate the synchrotron, you get X-rays uh, from it, and you could then utilize that for a variety of experiments. Uh, but, but there is sort of a limit to um, the intensity of X-rays you can get from it, right? Is that the issue? Yeah, so this was, uh, yeah, in terms of uh, X-ray, uh, say accelerator based x-ray source yeah, evolution of the accelerator based x-ray source this was considered a first generation uh, synchrotron radiation source uh, being first generation it's a parasitic to a high energy physics machine and uh, it has limitation in terms of both uh, its flexibility and also the wavelength tunability uh, you know because it's uh, the, the store drain was not designed for this purpose so then we come to the evolution of so-called synchrotron radiation and uh, free electron laser. We went through so-called uh, four generations of evolutions. I just mentioned you 1970 was about the first generation. And soon people start building that because it's uh, very useful for material research as well as uh, chemistry and biology. Uh, people start developing dedicated synchrotron radiation sources such as one first developed uh, at Brookhaven uh, called the uh, National Synchrotron Radiation NSLS light source. Yeah. Uh, so that was uh, 1980, I believe, uh, started uh, dedicated synchrotron radiation with dedicated energy, dedicated uh, uh, beamline design. So the sort of that's a second generation synchrotron radiation. And uh, the so-called third-generation synchrotron radiation is still based on store drain architect architecture. However, people use uh, uh, something called an insertion device, which is a sequence of uh, bending magnet by the alternating direction, and they form so-called undulator and wiggler. So instead of bending the electron in a pure circular geometry, it bends the electron upside up, up and down, or, or left and right. So it wiggles through the, 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 the trajectory, and that yields a much more intense and a more collimated X-rays. And that's called a single, uh, third generation synchrotron uh, radiation source. Right, so, so, so one reason we want this is uh, it's really to measure uh, very micro structures, right? So the smaller you want to measure, uh, the smaller the, the wavelength um, of the radiation that you need to use. So that's why we go to X-rays, right? Right. So, so actually, yeah, that's right. Maybe I should say a few words. Yeah, X-rays uh, for, for the broader audience. X-ray is just an, uh, one particular wavelength range in the, in the electromagnetic radiation spectrum. You know, the long wavelengths can go from microwave, radio wave, that we're, you know, for communication, uh, to visible that we can see, to shorter wavelengths, even shorter than visible is uh, ultraviolet, and the extreme uh, ultraviolet. And after that, we talk about soft X-ray, typically in the range of uh, one to ten nanometer wavelength range, or you know, in photon, we, we talk about you know uh, as a, a light of both electro, uh, both particles and wave. We also talk about uh, their energy, photon energy from say 1 keV, 100, 100 eV, that's a soft X-ray. And then we talk about hard, hard X-ray, which is uh, has a wavelength of Armstrong, 10 to the minus 10 uh, 
meter. And uh, those are the, uh, the those actually are particularly interesting because their wavelengths is uh, about the same size atomic spacing. So they are they are very suitable for probing atomic structure, for example. So those so we when we talk about when I talk about X-ray, I'm uh, I, I would include both soft X-ray, you know, like a, a one keV or one nanometer range to hard X-ray to, you know, 10 or tens of keV or, you know, Anstrom or sub -anstrom. So it's a still relatively broad range yeah, of the wavelengths. So, so hard X-rays are even shorter wavelengths, so 10 to the power minus 10 meters? Yeah, that's a, yeah. The technical, yeah, the technical term is uh, one Anstrom, yes. One um, And so, so we were sort of, uh, just like the the Moore's law, we were, we were sort of moving up this curve in terms of getting shorter and shorter wavelength. And uh, the shorter you get the wavelength, the more is there, is there another measure such as brightness? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. So, so yeah, we uh, say say you're interested in uh, you know say hard X-ray at one angstrom. So we're not in this case uh, we are not moving the wavelengths. We can also talk about moving to shorter wavelength. Let's just say we're we're staying at one particular wavelength, say one Anstrom. And uh, the the typical figure of merit is uh, yeah for any light source is uh, what we call brightness. I think in other countries they call brilliance. It's basically a measure of how bright the light source should be. If you think about it, you're in a room. You know you have you know you know, say say outside is dark. You have a light bulb, so your room is light. But then you want to give a talk, you shine your laser pointer onto a screen, people can easily see the laser pointer. Uh, why is that? It's not because the, the average power of the laser pointer is larger than the, than the light bulb. In fact, the light bulb has much, you know, on the, in terms of average power consumption and the emission, it's much better than the, than the laser pointer. What's good about laser pointer is its brightness. It's very collimated. The, the photons are very concentrated in a small spot and a single color. That that's you know that uh, mathematical term for that is the brightness. So we so we met, so we say the laser pointer is brighter than the light bulb, right? So if I by the same by the same argument, we we use this uh, brightness to define the quality uh, the the quality of the light sources. And when we talk about the evolution from, say, the X-ray tube to synchrotron radiation, first, second, third generation, which I'll come to the fourth generation later, is the in terms of brightness evolution. So people yeah, plot this kind of a very similar to Moore's law. You know, the vertical is the vertical axis is the brightness and the horizontal axis is the year. You know, for the first 50 year, we are basically stuck with, uh, you know, after the invention, after the discovery of X-rays, we're kind of stuck with the uh, X-ray tube for, you know, 50 years. And then the first generation, you know, the, there's a jump in terms of brightness. Second generation, another jump. When we say a jump, it's not a factor of two or three jump. It's a factor of, it's a two or three order of magnitude jump. So usually those are plotted in the log scale, you know, just like a Moore's law. And the third generation insertion using this uh, undulatory insertion device, it's another three, three factor, it's a three order magnitude jump. 
So this is uh, the sort of what we typically uh, describe uh, the, the, the source in terms of their color, which is a wavelength, which is a photon energy, and in terms of brightness, which means, uh, you know, just like you think about the uh, uh, brightness of a laser pointer versus a light bulb. So, so I want to go to one of your earlier papers um, from 2006, uh, fully coherent X-ray pulses from a regenerative amplifier-free uh, uh, electron laser. Uh, so you say we propose to analyze a regenerative amplifier-free electron laser, FEL, to produce fully coherent hard X-ray pulses. Uh, the method makes use of narrow bandwidth BRAC crystals to form an X-ray feedback loop around a relatively short undulator. Uh, so, so you talked about hard X-ray pulses. So what is so special about this free electron laser? Um, okay, yeah. I'll get that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah, what is that? Yes, okay. Uh, yeah, so, so before I talk about the main paper and other papers, uh, I, yeah, uh, you have in mind, uh, let, let me also uh, introduce the concept of free electron lasers. So far, I only talk about the uh, synchrotron radiation, uh, which is, uh, you know, whenever this is a this this phenomenon doesn't depend on uh, it's a single electron or it's many electrons. Basically, electrons just emit independently, and you add up intensity instead of you know that's all basically because they're they're emitted in an incoherent fashion, so you just add up the intensity. Uh, so the more electron, of course, helps because you have a higher intensity. Uh, but uh, yeah, so the next, so that's the first three generation of single of the accelerator-based X-ray sources. Now I want to introduce the free electron laser, which is, uh, you know, again, as you can imagine, another big jump in this, uh, in this uh, so-called uh, more more law plot. Uh, but the, the this jump comes from uh, mainly the electrons start to cooperate, you know, the electrons start to interact each other, uh, and then they actually cooperate each other to emit the radiation much more intense, much more coherent. And now we're talking about, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you know your fundamental physics, uh, because uh, all, the, all this uh, radiation of waves, we're adding the wave amplitude in a coherent way, so the intensity does not just scale with the number of electrons, but scale with the number of electrons square. So you add up radiation field amplitude, and uh, you know that scale linearly with uh, with uh, with uh, with the number of electrons. But uh, the, the 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 intensity scale like a square of the number of electrons, and the number of electrons is usually very big. So that's why the free electron laser is another jump into into the into the this uh, domain of uh, coherence and brightness. So, so that's the two major differences. One is coherence, <clears throat> and the other is number of electrons in the process, right? So why are we using electrons here? Is it because yeah. we can accelerate that closer to the speed of light? Yeah, okay, uh, yeah, so let me back off that. I mean, people, maybe people ask why you, why, yeah, why use, why, why use, uh, you know, th there's three, three words, right? Free electron lasers. Uh, I mean, I told you electrons are easy to be are easy to radiate because they're relatively light. You can easily bend them, manipulate them. They're easy to radiate. And secondly, why free? Uh, the, the name free come from the 
uh, a typical laser used uh, this, uh, you know, a typical laser you're familiar with uh, used the uh, uh, electronic transition in the, in the atom where the electrons are bonded by atomic states. Uh, those electrons are usually, say, live in a solid or in a gas. They are not free. So in this case, the free means that these electrons are free from any atoms. They're just like a electron we pull out of the metal. Okay, so that's the free and the electron and the laser part I explained, it has the laser-like property. So why do we do free electron lasers? Uh, that's because free electron laser uh, is a completely tunable. Unlike any atomic laser, which is uh, depend on the atomic transition, so you have a pretty specific color. And uh, once you select the material, once you, you know it's basically fixed at, a, you know, maybe with a, some tunability, but it's a very much fixed at a certain color. But uh, as a free electron laser, they're free from this atomic transition and they're being uh, accelerated to relativistic speed. And uh, the wavelengths will be, you know, you, you, with a relativistic effect, will be Lorentz boosted uh, to, to shorter wavelengths, to the X-ray wavelengths, and their tunability completely depend on the electron energy. So if we change the electron energy by changing the accelerator, you know, uh, accelerating energy or, or voltage, we can change the uh, wavelength coverage of the free electron laser Basically arbitrarily, with of course with a with a with a cost uh, with a with a you know the the, the basically is limited by the cost. Yeah. And so the same device could produce variety of types of uh, lasers, different color, different intensity, different intensity. Sort of uh, turning the knob on the device, you could you could create precisely a custom sort of laser. Is that the way to? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. So because of the tunability, uh, so the free electron laser tends to operate in, uh, find their application in places where, where conventional laser is, uh, is either, either it basically where conventional laser is hard to do. Uh, for example, in the visible wavelengths, you know, there are a lot of conventional lasers. We don't, you know, and also they're much more compact, like, uh, you know, laser scanner or laser pointer. So you don't you don't build an accelerator for those, but uh, there that yeah there in the early day of free electron laser development, people actually go to longer wavelengths such as terahertz regime, where is uh, terahertz in in case uh, uh, is uh, in case of, uh, you're not familiar with it's a it's a wavelength regime uh, again of electromagnetic radiation that's between microwave and visible, so it's longer than visible and the shorter than microwave. It's also very hard. There's a famous terahertz gap. It's very hard to find the coherent source there. So, so free electron laser in the early days was developed to fill in uh, that kind of gap, and also in the far infrared. And what in that case also the advantage of free electron laser. Another advantage I forgot to mention is not just tunability, but because the you are not depending on the material. Your your material is. A, is free electrons and they move with relativistic speed. So you don't have a material breakdown. So you can have a very high power device because the electron beam is intrinsically high power. 
So there are people developing high power infrared uh, uh, FELs for, for various research. But that was the uh, early days in the 1970s, 1980s uh, of free electron laser development. Uh, uh, later, due to various technology improvement, uh, people in our in my field realize you actually can build an X-ray free electron laser. And why that's interesting? First of all, we we talk uh, we talk already why X-ray was interesting. Why X-ray is interesting because it's uh, it has uh, the wavelengths. It's uh, suitable for probing atomic, uh, atomic uh, and uh, molecular systems. And then uh, X, if you can build something that's better than synchrotron with, uh, with a free electron laser-like property, you know, with a better coherence, with N square, N being the number of electrons enhancement, and with a coherence, so you will get another big jump in terms of this brightness curve. So that's the, that's the, the the, the, in the 1990 and then 2000, there was a worldwide effort to build that type of device. And at Slack, we actually have the first hard X-ray free electron laser. And that offers a billion times a, a higher brightness than the third generation light source. And it's it's not a factor of uh, 10 or something, it's a factor of a billion. So that's a, that's a pretty, 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 uh, pretty giant step, I would say, yeah. Yeah, I don't know a lot about this, wrong, uh, but I was wondering if this falls into uh, the hands of bad people, uh, could this be weaponized at some level? Uh, so the, the, yeah, so the, uh, the not uh, not this type of X-ray free electron laser because they're very intense, but they're only intense over a millions of billions of seconds. You know, it's like uh, it's very much like a high, very high power. Uh, optical laser, people talk about even higher intensity, like a Padawan lasers, but they're only Padawan. They're not a Padawan for a second or, or a minute. They're Padawan for uh, millions of uh, billions of seconds, right? Uh, you know, 10 to minus 15 seconds. So we call it a femtosecond. And they're they're very short and very intense. Okay, so their average, I will, we can get to there. Their average power is not so high. But what I also told you in the early day, in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, people do develop a much longer wavelengths, say tens of a micron, and uh, very high power FELs. And uh, because that was 1970, 1980s, it was still during the Cold War era. The free electron laser at that time was con was conceived as uh, some anti-missile laser. You know, for uh, was actually part of the Reagan's. Uh, Star War, you know, uh, initiative, strategic initiative. So that you know, there were a lot of funding from that uh, from that era, but now the X-ray free electron lasers are purely used for scientific research, for fundamental research. I would say. Yeah. So the so the diffraction patterns you can go, I guess you can go all the way to proteins and um, structures, atomic structures, uh, those types of things, right? So. Yeah. So that, that right. is the application. You, you talk about here in the paper uh, a narrow band with Bragg crystal. So so what's the connection there? Yeah, maybe maybe I give you some before I, we get I get there. I'll give you some general, more general application of X-ray reflection lasers. Uh, the the one uh, so I, I think uh, we we all so brilliance is one thing because that means you can have so many photons in certain 
so the focus down to a certain spot and uh, within certain time window. So that's uh, uh, and uh, uh, and why why so also I told you the other characteristic of this X-ray fusion lasers are, you know, their the duration is um, millions of billions of second. Why that's also important because. Uh, when you actually, yeah, so one thing is to look at static picture for atoms and uh, molecules. Those you can do with uh, conventional, more or less conventional X-ray sources, including, for example, in the DNA structure, you we didn't have uh, any synchrotron or FEL, and, uh, you know, Rosalind Franklin still was able to get, uh, you know, beautiful, beautiful diffraction pattern because they, uh, the X-ray wavelength was right, and if you have large enough crystal, you can still get those structures. Uh, when we talk about, uh, of course, when you go to higher, much higher uh, uh, brilliance, brightness, and people use that to solve many, many more protein structures much, much faster. And uh, you know, there, you know, the, I think uh, the, some statistic like. Uh, uh, you know, 80% of the protein database uh, structure was solved by X-rays, something like that. And um, however, what we also want to use with X-ray laser is not just looking at the structures, but look at the, you know, because those atom and the molecule, they're so small, they move at the femtosecond time scale. So we also want to see their motion, to see the chemical reactions, and also to to understand chemical reaction, for example, for photosynthesis, for photosynthesis, this type of uh, fundamental research, that's where X-ray laser, X-ray free electron laser will shine. It's not just look at a static function, static uh, uh, structure, but look at the functions, look at chemical reactions. So, so can, yeah, I just want to go. I just want to mention that. Yeah. Yeah. So at some point, you can sort of take a movie, right? So you can that's actually. Right. See what's what what might be happening. That's uh, right. That's a, yeah. That's exactly the idea. So and uh, it has been done. You know, with uh, with uh, first uh, hard X-ray free electron laser, we call the LINAC coherent light source at the Slack National Accelerator Lab. That was uh, completed uh, in 2009, and uh, after 10 years of running, we have uh, you know many many. Uh, uh, interesting scientific result, including molecular movies. Yeah. yeah so the, and then yeah. So people say there's still something missing. Uh, what's missing is uh, uh, the accelerator to fire such a X-ray uh, X-ray laser is uh, is built on something uh, Slack used to used to to have. Uh, you know, it's again it's from a high energy high energy accelerator. And uh, it was uh, built uh, in the 1916. Uh, it was a conventional uh, room temperature accelerator. So they can fire such an intense pulse, but they fire it only at a very low repetition rate, uh, about 100 hertz, uh, which means 100 shots per second. So each shot is, uh, you know, this a uh, super bright, uh, lots of photons in, uh, you know, millions of billions of a second. But we, the, because of the limitation of this uh, room temperature accelerator, we only fire them hundred. We can only fire them hundred uh, shots per second, and that's already very useful for many scientific research, but not enough for for some more demanding challenges. And, and these are all uh, linear accelerators, right? That that is where. Um, and, and so, from a practical perspective, 
you, you need this accelerator to produce these things. So, so any experiment has to be in close proximity to the accelerator for that to work. Uh, yes. Uh, so this is yeah. So the uh, the configuration usually is a linear accelerator firing many electrons per second and continuously, you know, day and night, except you know when the machine need to be maintained. And then we send it into this radiator device where the free electron laser action happens, what we call the undulator. And in there, the free electron laser will produce. And then it will be, you know, X-ray will be, the electron will be stopped. X-ray will be transported to the experimental area where you can use X-ray optics to switch between several experiments. In the current RSS configuration, we have seven experimental station, depend on you know, this is all, you know, uh, uh, being pre-scheduled and uh, people have to come uh, to at least have to bring their sample here uh, to do the experiment. But this day, because of the COVID, especially well, last year due to the COVID, uh, 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 we are we're getting much better at running remote experiments. So the sample need to be here. But there's, uh, of course, uh, people on site to help uh, install the experiment. But the people can do a lot of experiment remotely. And the accelerator itself is multi-purpose, right? This is just one of its functions, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, the, right now we're because Slack Linux uh, is famous for you know it's a, a two-mile-long Linux uh, linear accelerator built in the 1960s uh, for high-energy physics research, and uh, the. The RSS, uh, the first hard X-ray FER, we're only using the last one third of the slack neck uh, for this uh, for free electron laser. The the middle section are still used for accelerator research. Now the front one third, the very beginning one third, uh, which is basically a kilometer long, is now in the process of com being converted to a high repetition rate X-ray free, free electron laser. We call Linear coherent light source two, and the, the main difference from RSS one, you know, the difference of RSS two is we are going to uh, replace. A, we're, we're already on our way to replace this room temperature copper linac with a superconducting technology, a superconducting RF linac that's uh, made of a pure niobium cavity and operate at a cryogenic temperature. So we can fire up to a million uh, electrons uh, per 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 uh, electrons uh, per per second. So in terms of repetition rate, or how basically how quickly you can accumulate your experimental data, it's a factor of another ten thousand improvement. And the undulator that you mentioned, those are magnets, right? Yes. Uh, so are there sort of innovations going on there as well to to further pump up the intensity? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the 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 magnet technology uh, used for RSS one, the two, are still based on so-called this uh, hybrid uh, uh, undulate hybrid permanent magnet uh, design. You know, you have permanent magnet, you have uh, irons. So there's still these are the this are I would say this is a workhorse for both the third generation synchrotron radiation facility and as well as actually free electron lasers because they're mature technology. And in the meanwhile, we're also, you know, together with uh, other partner labs, we're also developing 
a superconducting uh, undulator technology. Basically, the magnet itself is also a superconductor. Uh, you know, and uh, that's still under development. And, uh, and you know, still, I would say still in the R&D phase. Hopefully, that can be used later for such a long undulator beam line. Yeah. So, so I want to finish up with your recent paper, um, Refractive Guide Switching, a Regenerative Amplifier Free Electron Laser for High Peak and Average Power Hard X-rays. So Refractive Guide Switching. So what's the technology there? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Maybe I, can I talk about both 2006 and this paper together? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So so I, I kind of postponed your, your previous uh, question. Uh, why narrow bandwidth uh, using Bragg reflector? Yeah, so so I talked to you about uh, the spatial resolution. You know, uh, you know, uh, by the wavelengths, uh, Anstrom scale, the temporal resolution, femtosecond. Uh, we I didn't say anything about the uh, bandwidth, and it turns out such a device uh, is relatively narrow band, but they're not uh, fully transform limited. They're not a fully coherent in terms of longitudinal properties. That's just due to this. Uh, the electron start with anchor because the reason is electron initially starts uncorrelated, and eventually they build up correlation. But this correlation is not complete. So you do in that sense you don't have a fully coherent X-ray source, and they're not fully coherent. The one one feature of that is the bandwidth. Is larger than the Fourier transform limited, which is uh, you know pretty narrow in our case because the wavelength is so short. So the bandwidth can be on the order of ten. Uh, if it's if it's a Fourier transform limited, even for femtosecond X-ray uh, pulse pulse duration, it can be ten to minus four, ten to minus five, or even ten to minus six uh, relative bandwidth. Uh, so far, we don't get that in the standard uh, X-ray FEL. We're based on this uh, self. We're based on this. Uh, mode called the self-amplified spontaneous emission, we cannot achieve uh, full temporal coherence. So uh, in, the, in yeah, the two papers you mentioned, I will, I, will, I will try to explain both of them here. In the 2006 paper, we discussed one method of building a, a more better coherent X-ray source by using a, a black crystal to both, you know, first, the, the, the as you know, the crystal, uh, uh, when you apply Bragg law, only certain color get reflected, and the, that the the narrowness of the of that uh, width of so-called you know the bandwidth is very narrow. It's typically on the ten to the minus five level. So, so that's the number one thing. When you shine the X-ray onto a Bragg crystal, you get a you know a, a part of the X-ray got reflected. Only the part that you actually really like, which is within 10 to minus five bandwidth, and then also because the, uh, the due to the technology improvement, uh, people can uh, make very perfect crystal with silicon and with diamond. You can have uh, almost the you know very high reflectivity, you know 99 some percent reflectivity. So we suggested at that time you can you can have uh, you can do you can use the black crystal to both filter the x-ray uh, color spectral purity as well as reflected the x-ray so it interacting with the next x-ray uh, next electron beam and by this repetitive interaction you build up the power you also narrow the bandwidth okay yeah i hope uh, 
hope this is uh, not too too technical. Yeah, but uh, anyway, that was a that was a suggestion at that time. At that time, all we can use because of the the accelerator in order to you know actually coming back to meet the next uh, electron bunch, we need a the the so called this room temperature accelerator to have multiple bunches in there so you can meet the next bunch. The 100 hertz, which means uh, you know a sh 100 shots per second, the next shot is just too long. You know the, if you calculate the the speed the the the, the uh, you know the 10 millisecond times the speed of light, that you just too large too large cavity. You cannot uh, rely on such a large cavity to build a, to build such a thing. So you needed to have multiple bunches uh, yeah. in order to for the X-ray to come back to meet the next electron bunch. Okay, okay, that was the 2006 paper. Okay, so so at the highest level, Zirong, let me see if I understand it. So um, we are looking for sort of a perfect coherence. We don't get it um, because over time you get correlations and it sort of uh, becomes less pure. And we are using some sort of a filter. Um, you know, that, that, that's what the crystal is trying to do, right? To, to, to sort of, take away the noise so to speak and uh, and get it to closer and closer to coherence right is that right. way to think about it yeah yeah so i think yeah i think that's a good uh a very good uh uh yeah analog analogy yeah you use a filter and the crystal acts as a filter but in this case it acts more than just a filter it also has access a mirror to to reflect x-ray back so you can interact with the next bunch but what I was trying to say, if you only can have a copper normal conducting accelerator, you cannot put uh, that many bunches so close by. You can only you can put maybe ten bunches close by. Uh, you know that limits uh, limits the application. Now jump to 2020 yeah. because we're building this RSS2 uh, with uh, with much much higher repetition rate. I told you with a million shots per second. Now you can conceive to build an X-ray cavity when when the when the when the X-ray bounce back, it meet the next bunch in the millions in the millions bunch, you know, the, out of the millions bunch. That's what a, what a, so that you know basically this idea got revisited in 2002, uh, 2020, sorry, uh, to to think about now we have this uh, Brand new superconducting accelerator driving RSS2. How can we take advantage of this uh, uh, scheme as well as the development uh, technology development in uh, black crystal and uh, you know in in, uh, in the in the cavity alignment this kind of thing to uh, to realize a true uh, X-ray laser that's a fully coherent. Yes. So, so you say here a perched diamond output coupling ca uh, cavity crystal. Uh, to uh, sorry, this is uh, the the last paper, 2020. Yeah, the 2020. Okay. Uh, and so this is, I guess, still in R and D stage, right? It's still yeah, okay. yeah. So so the, yeah, the, right. So this the the, the paper itself is uh, 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 relatively technical. And uh, we basically talk about uh, how the scheme can be applied to RSS2, but also using a particular uh, switching technique, uh, which is termed as a refractive guiding switching, which is probably very technical to get to. 
uh, to basically not just building up the power inside the cavity, but uh, switch it out every every shot uh, to provide to the users. You know, it's one thing to have uh, lots of power stored in the cavity, and it's another thing to also switch it out. Because if you think about it, the black crystal will reflect all the good X-ray back, but it, where, how do you switch it out? So this is the paper trying to address that. But uh, without getting into the too much technical, yes. So we are trying to, uh, this is a concept for fully built uh, regenerative amplifier free electron laser. And uh, in the same time, we're also carrying out uh, our necessary R&Ds to build a prototype cavity. And we actually call this a uh, cavity-based free electron laser because there is another configuration I didn't have a chance to, to talk yet. It's on the so-called X-ray free electron laser oscillator. It's a, it's a companion concept uh, suggested by uh, my colleagues at the Argonne National Lab. Basically, you run this uh, cavity as a stable cavity and they just run it uh, in an equilibrium configuration as, a, as like an oscillator. You know, you have a laser oscillator, you have free electron laser oscillator. Now you say you can also have an X-ray free electron laser oscillator. So these two concepts are co pretty complementary and uh, they all depend on a very stable cavity and uh, with a high reflectivity that, uh, that's required. So in uh, in this uh, joint R&D project with Argon, so it's Argon Slack, and also we have a collaborator from Spring 8 uh, in Japan. Uh, so th in this collaboration, we're trying to build a prototype cavity to demonstrate the technology, to and also to demonstrate the gain for regenerative amplifier FEL as well as uh, well for the X-ray FEL oscillator as a stepping stone to build this. Uh, Full, concept, full full facility, which it was uh, outlined in this uh, 2020 paper. Mm. And so uh, I don't know much about this. <laughs> so I'm just uh, so so. Uh, there are there, there is the coherence problem. So you get to perfect coherence, you get high intensity. Uh, but then the more bunches of electrons you put into it, it the higher intensity that you're going to get, right? But the more, but the more you put into it, the lower your chance of accomplishing high coherence. So technology sort of uh, has to uh, go together in some ways, right? You you need more and more mm -hmm. and more and more <laughs> higher and higher. Yeah. So so in a way, you can think about this as uh, think about the you know typical laser also always have an oscillator, because all we are feeding back is X-rays. The electron just uh, each electron being you know after interaction is being dumped to dumped to an electron dump. So you uh, the, you can think about the coherence build up because the X-rays has the memory from previous interaction, right? That you, because we're recirculating X-rays, so the X-ray always remember what happened before. That's where the coherence really builds up. And this, yeah. So, so in 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 this paper and other paper suggests if you if you can have very stable X-rays with very uh, long coherence time, which also means happen to mean very narrow bandwidth. So that's uh, that, I would say that's the way you can you know it's a in a way it's a it we're what we're developing it's very similar to the development of lasers in the you know in the early days of laser development. You know, you start from amplified spontaneous emission, 
and then you build a, you know some uh, either you build some seed to to amplify the process or you build a mirror cavity system to amplify the process so so uh, laser has a various configuration such as amplified spontaneous emission seeded laser or you know laser oscillator and in this case we're also we're saying you know now we know how to build an x-ray free electron laser let's think about how we can build an x-ray regenerative amplifier free electron laser and x-ray free electron laser oscillator yeah so i think i would think this is a natural step of progression yeah right so so in conclusion Zirong, so um you said that, that the second um is it called rss2 yeah right now uh, yeah the project uh, we are building is called the rss2 yes and uh, so when, when do you expect that to be operational and uh, and when it's operational um where do you think sort of the biggest applications might be okay yeah so uh the rss2 is uh it's actually close to the finishing line uh the all the hardware should be in place by uh, by end of this year, and uh, right now actually subsystem are being commissioned, you know, being tested. Basically, we call it, we we use the term commissioning, uh, basically means uh, testing. And uh, next year will be our main uh, time, you know, the the main period of time to commission the whole system, you know, from the electron source because. Uh, there are, there are many technical challenges from, you know, because, uh, you know, a very high repetitive electron source is also not easy to, to do. So from high repetition rate electron source to superconducting LINAC, which is brand new for Slack, uh, uh, for Slack and also, the, uh, you know, go, go, going through the undulators and the, to, the, to the experimental station. That we hope to do next year. And uh, so the next year will be mostly on commissioning. I think operation should start later next year to, you know, to be on. That's a, uh, and uh, this type of scientific facility uh, is, uh, you know, it's a, a facility open to, to basically to the whole world. Uh, people can write proposals, you know, for, from, uh, from various field uh, to write proposals. There's a peer, uh, there's a panels uh, uh, composed of, uh, uh, you know, from peers so for each subfield. They review the proposals and they, you know, the, then the decision are made to grant their beam times. So, so this, uh, so it's a very competitive process because there are only about a half dozen such facilities around the world, and the LSS2 will be, you know, will be the first, as I said in my email, will be the first CW continuous wave. For X-ray free electron laser. Basically, what we are saying is uh, the the accelerator is always on, and the, the electron just uh, you know where you know very steadily at a million million uh, up to a million shots per second. So this will this will uh, be very ho hopefully much more stable than the first generation of X-ray free electron lasers, and it will you know it will serve the scientific community for a long time to come. Yeah, so um, from an application perspective, so do you see sort of life sciences applications, maybe material sciences? Where do you think uh, they will be sort of the most exciting? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm glad to try to to answer some of that. Uh, yeah, it, uh, so uh, 
I yeah, I, I'll say you know I'm sure there's uh, other people have uh, maybe uh, different perspectives. Uh, maybe I would say there are several areas uh, uh, where we can we can uh, make our impact. Uh, I mentioned the photosynthesis. Uh, there are a lot of fundamental processes we don't understand because uh, uh, you know chemical reaction happens very fast, and uh, uh, we there in in the RSS one arrow. We already, uh, you know, the, the scientists already solved uh, like a so-called photo uh, system one. There are the, you know, molecule responsible for uh, part of the photosynthesis process, and the photo uh, system two uh, molecules, uh, a very complicated molecular structures, and there are still a lot to be gained. So if I think we, you know, I hope uh, with Aerosense two we can make a. Further headways into understanding of photosynthesis, which is definitely important. You know, one of the most important processes for life on Earth. Yeah. Uh, and uh, on material science, I think uh, the the main application is on this uh, so-called uh, quantum materials, correlated materials, because, for example, high TC superconductors, people still don't understand their magnetism. And uh, this X, this type of X-ray, especially in the soft X-ray regime, it's a perfect probe for ele electron dynamics in in these complex materials. How they interact with spins, orbitals, uh, you know, and you need a very high repetition rate because the low repetition rate signal is just too weak. You really need a high repetition rate in this case. Do you think that superconductivity arena to to get to higher and higher temperature superconductivity, but if we understand the process better, DC. It's more mostly on the material characterization understanding. It's not a. It, this is not try to push to even higher and higher superconducting superconducting states. It's try to understand what happened, the underlying physics and the chemistry. You know, so so that's a, it's a characterization of. Of materials, it doesn't have to be. You know, there can be other type of materials for, uh, for you know, like a magnetic switching. You know, for for various uh, you know semiconductor uh, applications. Uh, in terms, yeah, definitely. Also, I think uh, for life science, uh, this uh, the the interesting part is, uh, you know, as I said, the X-ray synchrotrons can solve a lot of uh, molecular structures. Already have uh, have done that. Uh, but the X-ray free electron lasers have, uh, I would say, two, at least two advantages. One is uh, you uh, because the pulse is so intense. You know, this is a, there's a term we call diffraction before destruction. So you actually you don't need a large crystal. You can do this with a tiny crystal, nano crystals, and you can actually get the picture in single shot before you blow the blow it up basically. And uh, you know, there are a lot of beautiful images if you search on the web. Uh, on this type of thing, so that's a that's a one advantage. So the one way of using X-ray laser is you can image very small molecules and uh, nano crystals and maybe single maybe uh, single molecules. Mm -hmm. The other advantage is uh, uh, you look at uh, you can look at the reactions, right? You can look at the uh, uh, dynamics. You know uh, that's something typically when you do this uh, in uh, say cryo EM or in the X-ray synchrotron uh, facility. 
you have to freeze the sample to avoid the radiation damage. Here, you don't care about radiation damage. It, you know, it, if, if it destroys, so what? You get a diffraction picture already. So you can look at the dynamics of the, of the process. So I would say there are a lot of application on that too. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for spending time with me, Zerong. Okay, yeah, sure. Glad to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, you ask a lot of interesting questions. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>